And uh, what a great hymn. All right, you're in Revelation chapter 20. And uh, I'll not review a lot in chapter 19, but if you remember with me, chapter 19 is about really the second coming of Christ and the battle of Armageddon. And so if you want to review that, you're welcome to go back and read. But I'm going to jump right into chapter 20. And chapter 20 is about the millennial kingdom. And the Bible says a lot about the millennial kingdom. Now, can someone tell me what the word millennium means? What does that mean? A thousand. Good job. All right, over here up front, I saw one of the young boys knew that. Good job. A thousand. It's a thousand year reign of Christ. And uh, we don't have the screen up behind me, but if we did, we could look and see we've worked our way right through the book of Revelation and we've seen the. Uh, we've looked at this period of time, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, which re- refer to the church age, which where we're living right now. And then we looked at the seven years of tribulation. And then, of course, uh, chapter 19 kind of brings that to a culmination. Jesus Christ returns on a white horse, and his saints return with him. There's a battle. They call it, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, Satan and the false prophet... And uh, the Antichrist are all defeated. And then in chapter 20, the Lord Jesus Christ sets up a kingdom on earth. It will be on this earth. And Jesus Christ is going to be the king. And he's going to rule and reign. Now there's a lot that the Bible says about this time that is somewhere, sometime in the future. Um, There will be animal sacrifices that will be reinstituted during that time. Um, uh, Jesus Christ is going to be the king. Uh, Believers who were martyred during the tribulation period and believers during the church age will rule and reign with Jesus Christ as priests and kings. And, uh, And the people who are going to live during the millennial reign are going to be the people who were who were saved during the tribulation period. And uh, had received Christ as a personal Savior. Jesus Christ comes back in chapter 19, defeats the Antichrist and Satan and the false prophet. And those believers who survived the tribulation period are going to live on this earth during the millennial reign of Christ. And the Bible says that they're going to live long lives. To the point where, if a person only lives to be 100 years of, of age, that's going to be considered kind of a baby. They're just a young whippersnapper at 100 years of age, okay, during the millennial reign of Christ. They're going to live long lives. Um, And those people who, those believers who were saved during the tribulation period, who survived it and and are living during the millennial reign of Christ, they're going to marry, and they're going to have babies, and they're going to have big families, And those people who are born during the the millennial reign of Christ are going to have to receive Jesus Christ the same way you and I receive Jesus Christ today and the same way the saints in the Old Testament received Jesus Christ then, by grace through faith. And uh, so there's a lot we could say about the millennial reign. We're going to stick primarily to the text uh, here this evening in in Revelation chapter 20. Before we get there, though, I'm going to read just a couple of portions of scripture, one from Matthew, Jesus Christ talking about this day, the millennial kingdom, and I'm going to read also from Isaiah chapter 65. So if you want to turn there to Isaiah 65, hold your place in Revelation 20. 
While you're turning there, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 24 and what Jesus Christ said about these days. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and I'm quoting from Christ in Matthew, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that's what Jesus Christ And he goes on from there, and that's all I'll read for this evening. But you're in Isaiah 65. Look with me in verse number 17. Isaiah 65 and verse 17. And there are many passages I could read from in the Old Testament about the millennial reign of uh, the Messiah. Isaiah 65 and verse 17, though, I'll start there and I'll read down through verse number 25. Isaiah the prophet prophesying, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. Now, what does that mean? Well, Cindy and I bought a house a couple years ago, and um, the house we bought was built by the Ancho family. It was their dream. They saved and they worked and they built, bought that property, they built that house, but then they passed away. And they built it, and we bought it, and we inhabit it. But in those days, people are going to live so long. They're going to be able to build things. They're going to live a long time to be able to enjoy that, it says in verse 22. Continue there. They shall not plant and another eat, for as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of of the Lord." And their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. And the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. All right, turn back to Revelation chapter 20. Now, I want to make something real Just maybe I want to avoid misunderstanding. Um... Now, those of us who are alive today who will enter into the millennial kingdom, we will not give in marriage, we will not be married, and we will not bear children. Only those believers, those tribulation saints who survive the tribulation and enter into the millennial kingdom, okay? Just for clarity's sake. Look in Revelation chapter 20, I'll begin in verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse number 15. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. 
and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Of that, the rest of the dead there, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but it has the idea of those people who were unsaved. In the Old Testament, there were people who rejected the Messiah. They died lost. They were in a place called hell, Hades, to this day. You think of the rich man. You remember the rich man in Lazarus? He died. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, a place called Hades, a place of torment, a place of fire. Uh, The common term is for hell. During Christ's earthly ministry, people rejected him. During the church age, today, in the age in which we live, people reject Christ. They die, they go to Hades, hell, and uh, there's coming a day where they're going to be brought back and they'll stand before Jesus Christ. But and, and they'll be judged, and they will suffer what's called a second death, and they'll be thrown into a lake of fire of eternal punishment. So the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. That's, that, that great white throne judgment is not going to take place until at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand years are finished. It says there in verse 5, this is, but this is the first resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. If you've been born again, if you've been raised from the dead spiritually, then the second death has no power over your soul. That's very, very important. But they shall be priests of God, those who are saved, and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7. And here in verse 7, down through verse 10, we see a revolt. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, when they come to an end, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and, and the beloved city, and that, of course, city is Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that'll be the end of the devil and Satan as we know of him. He'll never ever again be loose to deceive people. Uh, and, and after that happens, we're gonna, we look at verse number 11, down through verse 15, and we see what we call the great white throne judgment. And it's a place of judgment for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ throughout uh, human history. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So it has the idea of if a, this is a terrible day uh, for those who are lost. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray together and let's ask God for his help. And I'm going to try to be brief this afternoon because I can see the sandwiches and soup and other things that you've been, you're working, you're fighting hard. Let's pray, and, but we'll look at this important passage of Scripture together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that, it, that it is true, that we can depend upon it. Father, I pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit this afternoon. Father, we're tired, we've eaten lunch, we're a little tired and groggy, but God, I pray that we'd not miss the wonderful truths that are in this passage of hope and certainty. Um, and Father, thank you for your salvation and giving it to us. I pray that we'd be good stewards of it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are two main parts to this passage. Number one, there's the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It's a thousand years Jesus Christ is going to rule on this earth. It's going to be a one-world government. Okay, we could say it that way. Uh, in a sense, it'll function like a monarchy. Uh, and Jesus will be the king. Or we could say, in a very true sense, it will be a theocracy. God will reign on earth. Uh, Jesus Christ will reign. So there's the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. The second part of this passage in chapter 20 is verses 11 down through verse number 15, and it's about a very important day, and a day that not a single one of us want to be here for on that day. And that day is, going to, is called, we call it, the Great White Throne Judgment. And it's a place of judgment. You've heard me talk before about the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. That's a place of, that's a time of reward. That's for God's people. It's a time of reward for faithfulness, for running the race, for doing what Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus this morning that we looked at. You know, that they would know the love of God, right? Uh, uh, they would uh, be rooted and grounded in it, and that they would have the fullness of God uh, controlling their lives, and Christ living his life through them, and having, living their every day according to the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ is a place of reward for faithfulness. But the great white throne judgment is a place of judgment and damnation for everybody who has rejected Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And it is a sobering thought, because most all of us in this room know somebody, probably even many people, who already have passed away off of this earth, who rejected Jesus Christ right up until they died. And uh, they will stand before God on this day. It also is a motivation to you and to me to be witnesses under the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ and to point people to the Savior of the world, whosoever will may come. But notice first with me the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and the description of it. Look again at verse number 1, and I'll read down through verse number 6. We'll take it in a couple of sections. In verse 1, he says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Um, verse 2, And he laid hold on the dragon, 
Who's the dragon? Well, he doesn't leave us leave it to any kind of imagination. That dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. So we know who he is. And bound him a thousand years. Now, can anybody remember who has the keys? Uh, uh, the keys to death and hell. Does anybody remember who has the keys to death and hell? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Uh, back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, we saw this just as we began our study. Jesus Christ said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And then he said this, and have the keys of hell and death. Who has the keys of hell and death? The answer is Jesus Christ, not Satan. The devil does not have the keys of death. The devil does not have the keys of hell. Jesus Christ has the keys of hell and death. And so in verses 1 and 2, the adversary, the tempter, the destroyer, the evil one, will be imprisoned during for a period of 1,000 years, during the duration of the millennium. Now think about what that must be like. You and I live during a day where Satan is not bound. Uh, The Bible talks about him as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Imagine what that's like. Uh, We live in that day where he has, uh, I don't want to say free course, but he has a lot of freedom to go about the earth is seeking to tempt, to destroy marriages, to destroy family, to steal away children, right? Um, the prince of the power of the air, uh, involved uh, at high levels in human society, in different governments even. Uh, but think about what it must be like. Generation after generation are going to be born during the millennial reign. We think about the millennial reign as uh, uh, kind of a blip in time, in the future, and it's really kind of hard for us to imagine it. We don't talk about it a lot. We don't think about it a lot. It's kind of an event that's going to happen, the millennial reign. It's almost like it's going to be for a couple weeks or a couple years or maybe 10 years or something like that. But millennial, a thousand years. What was a thousand years ago for us? Well, it's been a while, right? What was going on a thousand years, a thousand years ago? I mean, how old is the United States of America? Not very old. A couple hundred years? But a thousand years. Jesus is going to rule for a thousand years. Satan is going to be bound. He's going to be imprisoned for a thousand years. And generation, children are going to be born and they're going to grow. And they're going to get married and they're going to have children. And they're going to grow and get married and have children. And literally, generation after generation is going to be born... The earth is going to flourish as it did during the Garden of Eden. And for 1,000 years, that old deceiver, Satan, Lucifer, that murderer, is going to be imprisoned. He's going to be chained. It really is going to be wonderful. The Bible tells us that he's bound, and that he's bound for 1,000 years, a a period of time. But it also tells us a place where he's bound. Now, look at verse number one, the middle part. It, it's, he's bound in the bottomless pit. The beginning of verse number three, you read it again, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. Well, so the place where he's bound is the bottomless pit. We get our English word abyss from this 
uh, a bottomless pit, uh, the Greek word for a bottomless pit. We get our English word abyss. And it was thought to be the place of the dead, and especially the abode of demons. And the devil's going to be imprisoned. He's going, the Bible says, shut up. And a seal is going to be placed upon his imprisonment. The Romans used to do that. They used to put a seal. And if you broke the seal, it was punishable by death because you were going against the authority of the Roman government. And you didn't have the authority to go against their authority. And you would pay the price for it. And it's interesting here that the seal of God is placed upon the bottomless pit, so-called, this abyss, this place where Satan's going to be imprisoned. And the seal emphasizes the authority and the power of Almighty God. God has thrown him into the bottomless pit by one of his angels, and nobody can free him. He doesn't have, Satan's not powerful enough. His demons are not powerful enough, and he is bound. Uh, notice in verse number three, the latter part, the purpose or the reason why Satan is bound. Look at verse number three. You see that, that he sets a seal upon him, the middle part, that he, why? That he should deceive the nations no more. That's the reason. Till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. But the reason why God... Uh, binds up, imprisons Satan, is so that he can no longer, for at least a period of a thousand years, deceive the nations. As I read this and was studying this this week, I was reminded of the fact, yes, mankind has a wicked heart. Yes, we all have flesh that's desperately wicked. But the reality is we also live in a depraved world where Satan deceives he really does. And he deceives in the area of music. He deceives in the area of entertainment. He deceives in the area of politics. He deceives in the area of education. He is the great deceiver. He is the father of all lies and is despicable. And he, that is what he does. He goes about seeking to deceive. You think about that for a moment, what it means to deceive, what it means to be deceived. To be deceived, you have to believe something to be true when it is not. And Satan's end goal is uh, for those, to keep those who are unsaved unbelieving that they will perish in hell for all of eternity. To rob God of glory and honor. If he can get a believer, he can't take away a believer's salvation, but if he can get a believer to follow him and believe his lies, he can rob that believer of a life that would be fulfilled the joy of the Lord, living a life of hope and the power of God. And uh, it really is sad what he does today. It's terrible, but for a thousand years during the millennial reign, he's going to be bound. Uh, uh, and so he'll not be deceiving the nations. Now, notice in verses 4, 5, and 6 that during this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, that the saints of God are going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, Paul alluded to this. I'll remind you of it. He told the Roman believers, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. That's interesting. Uh, God's going to bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Uh, while Satan is bound a thousand years, God's people are going to rule and reign with Jesus. 
It's important to remember that the followers of Christ didn't earn these blessings. We didn't earn this. It's because of the grace of God. It's because Christ has earned it. Uh, In verse number four, notice the saints of God are going to rule with God. Verse number four, it says this. And I saw, excuse me, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And remember, we talked about this during the tribulation period. People died, will die. They will die for the word of God. They will die uh, in order that that people might know Christ as their Savior. Uh, And these people had not worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their Hands and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, primarily in verse number four, he's talking about tribulation saints. Um, in, in, Rome, in Revelation chapter five and verse number 10, you remember the elders of the church age declare, and we shall reign on the earth. The latter portion of this verse is speaking of the tribulation saints, those who were martyred, and that they're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. In verse 6 of this chapter, it speaks of those having part in the first resurrection as reigning with Christ a thousand years. In chapter 22 and verse 5, the servants of the Lamb are said to reign forever and ever. It also would seem that at the conclusion of the tribulation, at the dawn of the thousand-year reign of Christ, one of the first things accomplished is the reestablishment of human government. That government will be in the form of a theocracy, Christ reigning, a monarchy, Jesus Christ reigning. And, uh, and, and, and Christ will be the head, and those who have faithfully served him in this age and during the tribulation period will be assigned to rule with Christ, Christ under the, under, upon the earth. In verse number 6, notice the beginning part, the character of the saints of God. Notice their character. It's one of righteousness. It says this, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy. Now, this is the character of the saints. Uh, They're saints of God. They're holy ones is literally the idea of what he's saying. It's interesting that the word holy is translated also as saints in the Bible. And, and, and these who have been redeemed down through the ages, Old Testament saints, the New Testament church, or tribulation martyrs, all have a part in the first resurrection. They collectively are not afflicted with the second death. That is, they have no fear of death or hell. And, and, it, and by the way, death, the second death is described as... Um, as being a lake of fire. In other words, these who are redeemed and part of the first resurrection will never face the lake of fire. And that's you and me, folks. Those of us, the Old Testament saints, today, the believers in the uh, New Testament era, the church age, um, the tribulation martyrs will never face the lake of fire. And we can praise God for that. Uh, Blessed are those who will not face that day. Uh, look again in verse number five. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. That's us. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him 
a thousand years. So the saints of God will not face judgment. Now in verse 7, down through verse number 10, we find uh, Satan's final deception. And really, mankind's last rebellion. Now this, to me, is mind-blowing to me. Jesus Christ is the king. It is a holy government. It's perfect. There's no error in it. Uh, Jesus is the king. There's no error in him. I mean, you know, when President Obama was president, people could find error. President Trump is president, people can find error. President Bush was president, people can find error. Right? We can go right down to the list. No matter what human being has ever ruled as king or president or anything like that, we can always find error. And it doesn't matter if it's a governor or a mayor, right? Men, we make mistakes. Jesus Christ is not going to make mistakes. It's going to be perfect. People are going to know the truth. The truth is going to be taught. They're going to be living without the devil roaming about deceiving people. And yet, when Satan is loosed for a time at the end of the tribulation, or excuse me, end of the millennial reign of Christ, he's going to deceive nations, people, numerous people. And they're going to descend upon the great city of Jerusalem, that holy city, and, and God's going to have to put down that revolt one final time. Notice in verse number 7, it reads this way. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. So they've spread all over the earth, which would make sense. They're not going to be, want to be close to where Jesus Christ is reigning. Gog and Magog. And it's not so much that Gog and Magog are the actual nations involved as much as the spirit of Gog and Magog, and they were defeated at the, the Battle of Armageddon, to gather them together to battle. So Satan is loosed. He gathers these rebels, those who re- have, are rejecting Jesus Christ. Satan's going to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. There are going to be many of these people. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about And the beloved city, Jerusalem, they're going to descend upon Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And they're going to be destroyed. And God's not going to waste much time. There's not going to be another battle of Armageddon. They're going to be incinerated. And by the way, just as a passing note, um, incineration of people... Has all, is always in the Bible equated with the judgment of God? That's just a side note, okay? Um, the pagans have done it throughout human history. Those who reject God in any afterlife um, will burn the dead. And I'm not saying if a born-again child of God chooses to be cremated that that soul is lost forever. I'm not saying that at all. But I want you to know something. We When... And, and I know it today in our, the way things are set up with our uh, funeral homes, and there's a lot of money that changes hands. I wish it wasn't like that. Sometimes people think this is a poor use of money to invest so much money in, in a Christian burial. But it's called a Christian burial for a reason. And we stand there and we lay that physical tabernacle, that physical body to rest And in front of all the witnesses, we say, we do this knowing that someday this body, this physical body is going to be raised from the dead. 
There's a difference between that kind of a burial. There's a testimony to that, a testimony of what we believe, as versus the cremation route, which throughout human history has been closely connected to those who reject God. And even we could talk about the judgment of God. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He consumed them with fire and brimstone. He burnt them up. Uh, And here again, around Jerusalem, Satan is loosed. He gathers these people who hate Christ, and they descend upon Jerusalem one last time. He deceives them one last time. And they descend upon Jerusalem, and what does God do? He literally consumes them with fire from heaven. So just as a side note, uh, I talk to the funeral directors from time to time, and they're telling me, more than ever before, cremation is the way people are going. And part of it, I believe, is because we don't value, we don't value people. Relatives don't come to the funeral. We don't have time in our schedule to honor a person's life anymore. And cremation is becoming much more practical. And part of it, frankly, is because funerals are so ridiculously expensive for everything. So it's just something you ought to think about. Um, And then that brings us to the final thought, and that's the great white throne judgment. And if you're a child of God, you will not be judged on this day. And I want you to know that. You're a young person here. If you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will not be judged for your sin if you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Notice the setting uh, in verse number 11 of the great white throne judgment. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Now, this time, the time of this awesome and terrible event is apparently after the battle uh, where Satan is burnt, or excuse me, Satan is defeated. Um, and we looked at that there in verse number, let's see here, verse number 9, fire comes down from God. Verse number 10, we didn't read it, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. So the beast and the false prophet are going to be in the lake of fire throughout the millennial reign of Christ. Now Satan is going to be, have been loosed, and now he's going to be thrown back in with them, and they shall be tormented, Satan with them, day and night forever. And there is a distinction between Hades, where the unsaved dwell and are tormented today, and the lake of fire, okay, uh, where Satan is. Uh, And I'll talk about that in just a moment. So this is after Satan has been judged. And and John records being allowed to see the great white throne. And he who is seated on that throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus described how that the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son, so it seems obvious that Jesus Christ will be the one who's sitting upon that throne. And it's a throne of great wrath. It's not a throne of grace. 
And, and it says there that even the earth and the heaven flee away and they can't find any place to hide. So the very physical universe understands the dreadful proceedings about to take place. The setting is in heaven itself and maybe the same place is described in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 15, the throne room of God. John continues in verse number 12. Look there, verse, the, the beginning part of verse 12. He says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Who's going to stand before God on that day? Well, this is the general resurrection. It's the, the, last, the, the last resurrection at which the unsaved, those who are in hell today, those who are in Hades today, God's going to bring them back to stand before him for a final judgment. Um. I, I could describe hell today or Hades today as kind of an interim place of torment. It's horrible. I'm not minimizing that at all. But it's kind of an interim place of torment. But on that day, the great white throne judgment, they're going to be summoned from Hades, from hell, to before the throne of God for the, their eternal sentence. John describes those who are there as, you see it in verse 12, the beginning part, the dead. Small and great. The, un, the ungodly dead is who he's talking about. From Cain. You remember, Cain didn't please God. He didn't offer to God the sacrifice that he should have. He didn't, he didn't behave or live or make decisions based upon faith. So from Cain to the rebels of Gog and Magog, they're all forced to stand before the judge of all the ages. And all of the unredeemed dead from kings to slaves. All of them, one by one, stand before God. The rich and the famous of this world, to those who are obscure and nobody knew who they were, they were the unknown. They're all summoned to appear before God. Notice verse 12, the middle part. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So at this, at there, these are terrible but awesome proceedings. Records are going to be brought forth. Evidence is going to be presented against every single person who stands before God in that day. The book of life, the eternal record in heaven of all who have ever lived and have met God's terms of redemption. What are God's terms of redemption, we could ask? Only those who have been saved, only those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will remain written in the book. And it is the record of the redeemed. The Lamb's book of life is the record of the redeemed of all time. You know, it's really a wonderful book, this, that, that record. But, but there are other books here. In verse number 12, the latter part says, And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And I think it should be kept in mind that this is not a judgment to determine whether or not these people should be should go to heaven or go to hell. That's not what the great white throne judgment is all about because that's already been decided. They already have spent time in Hades, in hell. Some of them hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years. But this, the great white throne judgment, is the final sentencing, the final hearing where the wicked of the ages are condemned for all of eternity. And there are different things that factor into that judgment. One is, uh, I believe, how they live their lives on this earth. In other words, I believe there are respective degrees of punishment. 
in the lake of fire. Every person's judgment will be determined by what is written in the books. And that which is written in the books is, verse 12, the latter part, you see it, according to what they have done, according to their works. The books will contain a record of every sin for every person there on that awful day. Can you imagine that? You stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, who you rejected, and every sin of your life you are is brought into account, and you are held guilty for. It will be a terrible day for those who are lost. And why are they there? And the answer why they stand there is because they never received Jesus Christ. They never put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They were never cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. They rejected God's offering, His offer, His gracious offer of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. They never chose to receive the forgiveness of God through the shed blood of Christ. I want to notice in verse number 13, notice there that the judgment will be inescapable. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. The unsaved down through the ages who have died at sea will be brought forth to be judged. Those who died on land will be raised from the dead. And they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be judged. Notice verse number 13, the latter part, and they were judged, every man according to their works. The wicked dead of all the ages will be resurrected from hell, regardless of whether they died at sea or on land, and they will all be judged according to their works as recorded and documented in the books. The books will reveal their guilt and the severity of punishment that they deserve. And there will be evidence, lest any man were to protest and say, I I didn't do that, and the books will show, yes, in fact, you did that. And and, and the books will be a record of a lifetime of sin. They will be judged every man accordingly. Uh, Notice in verse 14, this is the final judgment of that day. There will be a final judgment. In verse 14, the Bible says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In other words, those who died without Christ in their sins and condemned already are cast into the lake of fire. The word cast literally comes from the Greek word balo, cast. Uh, It was one of the easiest Greek words to learn, balo. We get our word ball from it, to throw, to hurl, to cast something. And here it's used in not anything humorous and, and no humor at all, because those who are unsaved are literally hurled into the lake of fire. So upon being sentenced, upon being found guilty, according to the books, by Jesus Christ, For rejecting his mercy, rejecting his truth, rejecting his grace, the unsaved dead from the ages will one by one be literally thrown into the lake of fire. And by the way, it is very clear in the Bible that the place where people are now, or the unsaved are now, the place called Hades, or hell, today, is a separate and distinct, different place from the lake of fire. And we could illustrate that by a person who is arrested today 
might find themselves in the Genesee County Jail, holding, held there, incarcerated there for a period of time, awaiting the judgment. And after they are found guilty before the judge and the jury, they are then taken down to Jackson, where they spend much more time, perhaps. The second death. That's what he calls it. The Holy Spirit describes this as the second death. Those who participate in the first resurrection are those who are saved, and they're never going to face death. In verse 6, I mentioned that. And we can praise God for that. Notice verse number 15, and we'll be done. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Was cast in the lake of fire. This is, the idea is that this judgment is final. There's nothing left. There's no other recourse. There's no other salvation. Those who never met God's term, terms of salvation, those who never received faith, or by faith received Christ's finished work, those who do not find their names written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. The influence of Satan, sin, and sinners will be forever eliminated from God's plan. And they will be eternally damned to a place of unending punishment, never to be released. And for those who are lost, it is an understatement to say that this is terrible. Now, what should you and I do with this? Most everyone, I think, today in this room have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I would encourage you to examine yourself to see whether or not you truly have received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Because if you have not, it will not matter if you stand before Christ on the day of the great white throne judgment. If you find yourself there, it will not matter if you attended Trinity Baptist Church or were a member of Trinity Baptist Church or worked or served in some sort of ministry because that will not save. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But for those of us who are saved, God has called us to be a witness to Christ, to point others to Christ by our lives, by our lips, by our testimonies. And we have a limited amount of time to do that in this life. We have a vapor to do that with. I would also encourage you, if you know someone who's lost and who's unsaved, take the open doors that God gives you. You and I can't save anybody. We can't pry open a person's heart. We can't make a dead person alive. We can't make someone believe. But can I plead with you for just a moment? Take the opportunities that God gives you. You know, God has called me and he has made me the pastor of Trinity Baptist Church. And I've said this so many times, you might be tired of hearing it. However, you have opportunities that I will never have to interact with people who are lost. Your co-workers, they don't care what I think or what I believe or what I know. They don't know me. They don't respect me, right? They don't, I have no influence in their life, but you do. You have tremendous influence in their life. And, and would to God that they would be able to look at our lives and they would be able to see Jesus Christ in us. And would to God that we would have boldness and pray for one another. And let us pray for one another in this way, that God would open doors of opportunity. Paul asked the churches to pray for him for that. And he asked the churches to pray that he would have boldness. Paul needed prayer for boldness. 
And you and I ought to pray for one another in that way too. And what is that stake? Because there's coming a day where those who are lost will stand before Jesus Christ Almighty. And there will be no hope of salvation at that time. There will be no, no one who will be able to say, Oh, you know what? I believe now. It will be forever too late. And as God has said in his word, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the warnings of it. Thank you for the grandparents that are in this room who believe your word and by their lives are trying to uh, be an example to their children and grandchildren to follow Christ and to trust in Christ and to listen and to obey the word of God lest they come into condemnation. Thank you for the parents in this room who see fit and see make the word of God is important enough to them rather than gaining some more rest, but to come and to gather and by example prove to their children that this, the Bible, is true and that you are to be feared and you are to be worshipped. And Father, I pray for us as we leave this place, I pray that you comfort our hearts, for some of us have a deep sense of grief in our hearts for those we know who are in hell today and will stand before Christ on that day, the great white throne. And our hearts grieve. And yet, Lord, I pray also that you would embolden us and give us doors of opportunity, Lord. Open doors that we might tell others of what, who you are and what you have done for us and what you have done in your word and what you would do for them. And Lord, I pray that we would bring honor and glory to your name and that you would use us to bring many people to you that you might save them for your honor and for your glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.